0: Good morning. It's good to see you here this morning as we worship our God together. Delighted to have visitors with us from Arizona. Is that right? All right. Good. And there's even one of those Arizonians that said they'd like to move to Michigan. So that's always good news. I don't know why, but uh, <laughs> that's what I hear. So anyway, delighted to have them with us. On the back of your bulletins are the announcements. We will be having lunch together and then an afternoon service about 1.45. Wednesday we meet on Zoom. We'd love to have you be there at prayer meeting Wednesday on Zoom. Uh, there you see the other announcements that's been in the bulletin before. So uh, I trust you'll take heed to them uh, as they apply to you. Well, now let us give ourselves to the worship of our God. Psalm 25 and verse 5 says, Lead me in your truth. Teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. And there are several things that we could point out with regard to the cry of the psalmist. He wants to be led, he wants to be taught, and he wants to trust. And that's the continual disposition of every believer. We never outgrow that. We need to continue His continual guidance. We need to recognize our trust in Him, and we need to be taught. And as we gather together, it's those three things that we desire He do among us. He would guide us, teach us, and help us to trust. So would you just take a moment to prepare your heart to meet with our God this morning. Inside your bulletin is the call to worship from the 86th Psalm. We will call one another to worship with the singing of this psalm. We will sing it to the tune of Teach Me, O Lord. If you need the music, it's on Trinity, page 451. But let us call one another to worship with the singing of this psalm together. Let's stand together as we sing. We'll be right back. back.
1: Please remain standing for opening prayer. Dear Lord, it is true there is none like you. There is no God but thee alone. No works like yours, O Lord Most High. And all the nation's Lord shall round thy throne their creator glorify. And that is exactly what we have gathered here this morning to do. We thank you for gathering us, your people, together to glorify and honor your holy name. May our worship be honoring and glorifying to you. May your Holy Spirit be upon us. May you make us attentive, keep us vigilant to understand and to hear your word. And may you open our eyes to your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now
0: take the Hymns of Grace hymn book. The Hymns of Grace, turning to 162. 162, Wonderful, Merciful Savior. We will sing this hymn together. Rachel, I don't know if we've sung this before, so maybe you could play it through once. I know we'll sing the first verse, and then go to the second, and then the chorus and so forth. But if you'll play it through.
1: Please turn in your copies of God's Word to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We'll be reading through verse 31. And as as I read this the first time this week, write the first verse. Talking about Jesus says, And standing up, He went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around Him, and He, according to His custom, and that phrase right there caught my attention right away. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. As soon as I read that according to his custom, I thought, okay, what are the things that Jesus does regularly? He's traveling around at this point in his ministry. And he's healing people. He's doing doing miracles. But here, what does Mark want you to understand that what he is doing regularly What is it that he's doing that Mark finds here the most important of his ministry at this point? The thing that he's doing according to his custom. The thing he always does. He's teaching the people. Jesus traveled around. He healed people regularly. He did miracles regularly. Right? But here the thing that Mark wants you to know is his custom was to teach the people. The miracles... And the healings were to testify that his words of teaching were true. This is the important part of Jesus' ministry. This is the most important at this point in his life is that he is teaching the people. And the amazing thing about this is is even though that Jesus is no longer here in person, but here is the Holy Spirit is God the Father and God the Son, but we have these words that he taught this incredibly important part of his ministry we have with us in our hands that we read all the time. This is what Jesus wanted us to know. These are the very words of God. Keep that in mind as we read through Mark chapter 10. Okay. I'll start in verse 1 again. And standing up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. And some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began to question him about whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and he said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote wrote for you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall be one flesh. And they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them and laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell your, all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished, saying to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake, for the gospel's sake, except one who will receive 100 times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the word of the Lord.
0: As once again we seek our God together in prayer, we especially want to remember the Trinity Baptist Church in Montville, New Jersey. So let us seek our God together in prayer. This morning. Our Father in heaven, as we have heard your word read to us this morning, we are reminded of many things. We are reminded of the importance of having homes that are pleasing in your sight. We are reminded of our responsibility in the home of husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, of wives gladly submitting to their husbands, a home where children are taught, a home where children obey mother and father. Father, You are the one who has established the family, and therefore we pray that as the people of God, we would desire to so live as families, that You would be well pleased, that You might say, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, we have been reminded also of the wonders of the Gospel and being a part of the Kingdom of God. Unless we become like a little child, we will not enter the Kingdom of God. Unless we recognize our dependence upon You and our helplessness By ourselves we will not enter the kingdom of God. But how we give You thanks for Your Son Jesus Christ and the hope that we can have because of His death, burial, and resurrection. How thankful we are for His righteousness. Father, we're thankful that as we stand before You one day, by faith we can be clothed in a righteousness not our own, but a righteousness of Your Son, and thereby be accepted into Your presence. Father, we pray that each one of us may examine our own hearts and lives to see that we're not depending upon our own good works. For it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by Your grace and through the blood of Your Son You have saved us. So Father, we're thankful for those things that Your Word would instruct us. We're thankful for the teaching of our Lord so that we might be a people that can pursue you with all of our hearts. Father, we're thankful for this day, the Lord's Day. Thank you for bringing us together to worship you. And we pray that you would come by your Spirit and help us to worship you aright. May every part of our worship service bring glory and honor to your name. And may we know the aid of the Spirit. And the word of God, to help us to draw closer to you. We would pray that wherever your word goes forth this morning, throughout Linaway County and around the world. But we would pray especially for our brothers and sisters there in Mottville, New Jersey. We thank you for the fellowship and the partnership that we enjoy with them because of the common bond that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We give You thanks for those men who lead that flock, those pastors, and pray that You'll help them to continue to faithfully preach the whole counsel of God. Father, we would pray for them as well, that they would be diligent in keeping their own hearts above everything else. We know that the majority of those elders are getting up in age, and we know one of their concerns and prayer requests is that You would provide them with younger men who would be able to serve in the eldership. Would you raise up such men, bring in such men? Father, we know that's the need of our nation even now, that you would raise up younger men who would serve as shepherds and pastors of your people. And so, Father, we pray that in days to come we might rejoice in seeing those men step forward and be used by you for the good of your church, We would be mindful of the men's retreat going on there, even this weekend, that you will bless that. We think of the upcoming pastors' conference here in a few weeks, that you will bless and use that as well. Father, we pray that you would be with our nation. We pray for our president. We pray for our vice president. Father, you will guide and direct them. We pray that you would give them a greater fear of God than they have of man. We pray, Father, that You would so work in their hearts and lives that they might lead us as a nation in ways of righteousness for Your name's sake. How we pray that, Father, most importantly, that You would bring them even unto Yourself. Father, forgive us for our sins. And have mercy upon us, we pray, in days to come. As we open Your Word, may the Spirit of God come and help us to rightly understand and rightly apply that Word to our lives. As we ask these things in Christ's name, Amen. Now before we come to open the Word of God, take your Trinity hymn books once again. The Trinity hymn books, turning to Hymn 83. 83 in the Trinity hymn book, we praise Thee, O God our Redeemer, Creator, number 83 in the Trinity. Let's stand together as we sing. chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19. For those of you who are visiting with us, we are in the midst of going through this book of Deuteronomy together. It is the message that Moses is giving to the people of Israel right before they go into the promised land. And so he is giving them instruction as to what is God's heart and desire for the people as they enter into this land that's been promised to their forefathers many years ago. This morning we find ourselves in chapter 19, beginning at verse 14. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 14. And you shall not move your neighbor's boundary marks, which the ancestors have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of his iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness arises against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges, who will be in office in those days." The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused a brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. The rest will hear and be afraid." and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And that's where we will stop our reading this morning. We are in the midst of a section in which Moses is instructing the children of Israel mainly about the Sixth Commandment. The Sixth Commandment is this, Thou shall not murder. Now last week we saw together what happens if someone takes someone's life, but they do so unintentionally. And they give the example of two men who, who go to the forest to chop down a tree, and one man swings his axe, and the head of the axe comes off, flies through the air, hits the other man, perhaps in the head, and the man falls over and dies. It was what we would call an accidental death. It was unintentional. And yet the truth of the matter is that there would be people of this man's family who has died who would want revenge. Who would want that man to die who had the axe in his hand. So God has provided what are called the city of refuge, and so a man could flee to the city of refuge, and there he would be safe, and his case would be heard. However, we also saw that if a man premeditated, hated someone, and killed someone out of that hatred, that man's life must be taken He shed innocent blood, and He did so out of hatred. And God says His life must be taken in order to cleanse the nation of wrongdoing and of wickedness and of evil. Now this morning, we continue, I believe, that theme. You might recall that last week, I set before you what the larger catechism says about this commandment. One of the questions of the catechism is, what sins are forbidden in the sixth commandment? And there was a long answer. In fact, I told you last week, I would seek to put it in your bulletin. And it's there if you haven't discovered it yet. It's on the back page. It answers that question. But part of that answer that I want you to consider with me this morning is this part where we read that the sin forbidden in the Sixth Commandment is the neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of the preservation of life. It goes on to say, "...and whatsoever tends..." to the destruction of life of any. In the sixth commandment, there's a charge given to us that we ought not to neglect nor withdraw the lawful means of preserving life. Now I want you to remember that. Because as we come to this passage, I believe it plays a very important role. And what we find here in these verses is first of all, instruction concerning life-saving action, and then second of all, life-saving witnesses. Life-saving action and life-saving witnesses. Moses sets before us two examples, one dealing with private property, the other dealing with witnesses in a criminal case. And so what Moses sets before us is first of all, what I've just entitled life-saving action, verse 14. Let me read verse 14 to you once again. It says this You shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark, which the ancestors have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess. Now, you might ask the question, as I did, what does that have to do with the sixth commandment? Has Moses lost his train of thought for a moment? And in the midst of talking about how we ought to treasure life, how human life is precious before God, has Moses for a moment lost his train of thought and said, Oh, by the way, don't forget the Eighth Commandment. Thou shalt not steal. And once I deal with that, for just a moment, I'm going to go back to the Sixth Commandment about life. What's going on? Why in the midst of this, does Moses mention the reality that when you enter into the promised land, your family, your tribe would be given a territory. And within that territory, various families from the tribe would have certain property that belongs to them. And they would mark out the boundaries with rocks, sticks, whatever. And that would tell you, this is mine and that is yours. And in the midst of thinking about that, Moses says, don't think about moving the boundaries. Don't think about picking up that stone and moving it so that maybe you would have more land. That would be stealing. And that is against the Eighth Commandment. But, but what in the world does that have to do with life? S- someone came to this verse and they described this verse this way that they said this is the riddle in the middle I don't know if that's a theological term or not but it's a riddle in the middle so what what are, what are we to take from all that well I would not object to the reality that it is stealing and it ought not to be done But I would also remind you that as they entered into the promised land and as the families and tribes received their territories, it was there that they would begin to harvest, produce crops. It would be their means of livelihood. It is how they would support themselves As they lived in the land. Stealing your neighbor's heritage would also mean you're stealing his livelihood. How he would provide for his family. It would be an attack against your neighbor's life. It is to withdraw the necessary means of the preservation of life. Usually to steal someone's property would be and lead to the destruction of life for another person. We don't think in those terminologies. If my neighbor... Mows his lawn and he takes his lawnmower over on my property and he mows a part of my property, I probably go out and say, Thank you. It's less for me to do. All right? But if I depended upon that property for my livelihood and as a means to support my family, And you took that away from me, it would tend to the destruction of my life, my livelihood. You can imagine one man who has a large family. And he's got some property and and he's taking care of that property and he's cultivating that property and and he's growing produce on that property. And and he sees next to him another plot of land and that man doesn't have as big a family as I have. And I think to myself, he really doesn't need all this property. I'll just take a little more that doesn't belong to me. I'll move the mark. He won't miss it. But how do we know? How do we know his family's not going to grow? How do we know that there's sometimes they're not going to... It would be wrong. It would be wrong. Mr. Lang in his commentary says it this way. Each district, as it comes into your inheritance, with thy neighbors as with thine own, is thus connected with the family's life and comprises its livelihood. The lessening or disruption of these limits is simply a question of existence, therefore. The possession, particularly the land, is the ground which yields to a man its produce for his support. Thus, it shares in the sacredness of life, which is to be preserved by it. So Moses has instructed the people about literally attacking another human being or killing someone else prematurely or premeditatively or unintentionally. Now He's dealing with the attack upon your neighbor's livelihood. The preservation of life. And the two examples point to the spread of the ways you can violate the Sixth Commandment. All this shows us... Here's a lesson. All this shows us is that God treasures human life. Man is made in the image of God. So the life of man, every man, is precious in His sight. He loves life. And the amazing thing is, He loves life so much that He gave His only begotten Son that we might have eternal life through Him and through Him alone. So here I say, first of all, Moses deals with life-saving action. Now secondly, we notice together the life-saving witnesses. Now here Moses also addresses an accusation Some accusations could cost some men their lives. Such an accusation must be dealt with aright and righteously. Therefore, there are two things that that Moses has to say with regard to an accusation of wrongdoing. He has something to say about The quantity of witnesses and the quality of witnesses. The quantity and quality of witnesses are of great importance. Remember the man, the two men in the forest, cutting down trees? The axe head flies off, kills one of the men. Let's say a family member comes along and says, listen, this was premeditated. This man holding the axe handle meant for it to fly off and kill my son or my, or my brother or my father or whatever the relationship might be. This man is guilty of taking my son's life and he met to do it. What are you to do? The man holding the handle says, no, 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 I was chopping and and the handle flew off. What are we to do? How are we to handle this? God sets before us a way. If a family deems the death was premeditated or intentional, there was a way they could pursue justice. If the man who did it declares it was unintentional, there's a way that he could be dealt with. He could flee to the city of refuge and his case would be heard. But God is saying, be careful. There's something about life-saving witnesses that are important. And so in verses 15-21, through 21, We have the rules of accusation, the the code of law that's to be followed in the case of someone. Verse 15: a single witness shall rise up against a man on account of his iniquity. So, first of all, we have a charge of, or a charge for, sufficient witnesses. Sufficient witnesses. Now this charge has a negative and a positive element to it. In order to establish the charge against someone, a single witness is not enough. Oftentimes, in biblical times, when it talks about one witness, it's talking about the accuser. So let's say the man who's... Son was killed in the wood. He rises up and he accuses the man holding the axe handle of murdering his son. He would not only be the accuser, he would be the first witness. We often think of those things as two different things. You you may have an accuser and, and that may be followed by a witness who saw everything. But in these times, the accuser was the first witness and in biblical terminology, that's not enough. So this first statement is telling us that the accuser alone is not sufficient. The accuser is enough to call for a trial, but the accusation alone is not sufficient. One or more, than of additional witnesses are required. And may I say this, because I want to make this clear. Sometimes, physical evidence qualifies as a witness. I mean, usually when a man commits a crime... And sadly in our day, things like child molestation. A man doesn't do that in front of an audience. It's usually just two people involved. His Word and His Word. But a witness isn't just someone who can speak. A witness can be other things, other physical Evidences in deuteronomy twenty two and verse seventeen, there's a garment that's used as a witness. In Exodus chapter twenty two and verse thirteen, pieces of an ox or a donkey can be used as a witness. So you have these other witnesses that come into play. In our DNA, we would say something like the DNA can be a witness as well. So here's the point. You cannot simply take the word of the accuser without sufficient evidence. It's a warning to all of us. Sometimes we, we run to judgment when we simply hear an accusation, but all the evidence isn't in. And, and w- at times we need to slow down. I, I find it amusing in this political world in which we live that if an accusation goes against my party I'm not as quick to hear no you got me said goes against the other party oh yeah he's guilty no doubt we must be careful with regard to rushing to judgment and it's interesting that here Moses does not give us An exhaustive manual about various witnesses. He just says, one accuser is insufficient. You need to have other witnesses. But it gives us the general principle. Be careful. Because what you accuse someone could lead to the taking of his life. And life is precious. So there's also here in this passage a charge of honest witnesses. A charge of honest witnesses. And this, in this section, Moses addresses the honesty of a witness. The quality of a witness, as it were. Again, Moses gives us an illustration. Look at the passage. Verse 16, if a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, a man makes the accusation. But here, his accusation is not an honest one. We're not given any of the details as to the dishonesty that's been exposed. We're not even told how the dishonesty is exposed, but the man is dishonest in his accusation. We are told that they must come before the judges. Remember, we we looked previously at one of the civil authorities was the judges in the land where a judge would hear a case. A, A judge was what? Not to take bribes, and he was not to be prejudiced. And he was to hear a case there in the local territories, and if it's still, if the, if the case was, was so tangled, the judge wasn't sure that he could make a good decision. he was to take the case to a city appointed by God, which we know sooner or later will be Jerusalem, and, and there they're to hear the case before other judges. And here the Bible tells us that that when you bring your case before the judges it's interesting they said no this you stand before the lord and before the priest so so in all likelihood, as a case was heard, the, the, the tabernacle, the temple was behind you. It was the backdrop. And then there were the priests standing there, and then the judges, and they would hear a case. It was to be a reminder that as you testify, you're doing it not just before these men. You're doing it before Almighty God. And to bring a false accusation before God is a, is a very serious matter. And so we're told that if it's found out that this man, after being thoroughly, that's the word to choose, verse 18, investigated thoroughly, and the witness is discovered to be a false witness, and he has falsely accused him his brother, you shall do to him what was intended for the man who's been falsely accused. So whatever the consequences would be because of the the wrongdoing that someone's been accused of, and it's found out that the accusation is false, those consequences now fall upon the false accuser. False accusations are taken very seriously and with serious consequences. And it would lead to the reversal of the consequences. And so Moses then goes on and says that when this happened, verse 19, Then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. And thus you shall purge the evil from among you. It is an evil, wicked thing that is happening. But then, as Pastor John MacArthur points out, this law code had two purposes. The first purpose was to curtail further crimes, it was to curtail further crimes. In other words, it would be a deterrent. When someone faces the genuine consequences of their evil, it serves as a deterrent. And when the person is punished for his crime, the rest will hear it and be afraid and never again do such evil things among us. might be a great principle that we seek to practice in our day. Evil needs to be punished. There are con- we, we don't have, as a church and as individuals, we don't have that responsibility. It's the civil government's responsibility to condemn that which is evil and to praise that which is good. And when you allow wickedness to run rapid, the consequences will always be lawlessness. Lawlessness. So, are we surprised when we see lawlessness in our day? When we see crimes committed in open daylight without no fear of any consequences that will follow? Are we amazed? People are stepping back. What in the world's going on? Why is all this happening? Read your Bible. The punishment of wickedness is a deterrent to evil. And you know what? I learned this when I was a child. When I disobeyed, (laughs) I got a spanking. And my mom, Though she's raising three boys on her own, was not hesitant to use the yardstick. She did it lovingly. But she didn't want those three boys to continue doing evil. And I soon realized, for the sake of my backside, it would be far better to not do wrong than to do wrong. I learned that as a child. When we're allowed and dismiss evil, then others become more emboldened to do evil. And pretty soon, we're ransacking department stores and carrying out all kinds of things because they fear no consequences. And now, whenever I feel like it, I can shoot a man because there's no sanctity of life. Because there's government-approved taking of life in a mother's womb. We no longer regard life as important or no longer fear the consequences of taking life. Dear people, listen. This is not a political speech. I'm not a politician. It's a moral truth. And the more we step away from God's decreed will, For our lives, the more we will find our nation in chaos. So the first reason for such consequences was to deter evil. But then notice, he goes on to say, and and this verse is often quoted and perhaps often misquoted, verse 21, Thus you shall not show pity, Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. It's often quoted in such a way that I'll get revenge. But what Moses is telling us and what God is directing us, and and one of the purposes for this code law is that of preventing excessive punishment based on personal revenge or angry retaliation. It's to prevent excessive punishment based on personal revenge and angry retaliation. I'm going to get him. And I'm going to give him far more than he gave us. That mentality. Uh, Of personal revenge. Now, there there is such a thing as as proper and, and right compensation if if i'm missing a milk cow and that milk cow is found on your property dead and you killed it cuz you wanted the meat you owe me a milk cow You don't owe me a herd of cows. You owe me a milk cow. I don't know if all that's proper language with regard to farming and all that, but you get the gif. There's something about just compensation when evil is done. But it's interesting to note that our Lord Himself quotes this and gives us that idea that I've just expressed to you over in, in Matthew chapter five, part of the Sermon on the Mound, verse thirty-eight. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Where, where did we hear that at? Well, oh yeah, Deuteronomy. It's also an Exodus. But I say to you, Do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt and let him have your coat. Wants to sue you and takes your shirt. Let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. What's he saying here? Is he saying we just let him get away with evil? Be a pacifist? Don't, no, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is this. Listen, don't you seek personal revenge. Don't you have an all get even mentality. We love even our enemies. and When we have opportunity, we're to do good to them. And what Moses is teaching us at the end of the day is, listen, okay, you know all these rules? (laughs) And and there's going to be more. I mean, if your Bible's marked up, you may have coming up. Sundry laws. All kinds of laws. Multitude of laws. And Jesus comes to us and He says, listen, (laughs) let's make it simple. Okay? Let's make it simple. Take all those laws. And it comes down to this. All right, you ready? Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That's a summary of all these laws put together. Love people. Care for people. And Moses is making sure that's carried out. That we're not seeking personal revenge. Our governments, our civil leaders, are called to be just. To mete out justice when evil is done. We might say we're called to be merciful. Merciful. The policeman, the judge, the jury are all called to administer justice. The Christian is called to forgive and be merciful. Merciful. That's what Jesus is teaching us. And so as we now see instruction, and and, and sometimes I step back and I say, wow, you know, I had this idea that you go into the promised land, you obey me, everything's going to be well, there's not going to be any problems, evil's going to be gone, it's going to be paradise. But Moses is saying, no, it's not going to be. There's going to be still evil and wickedness. And you're going to have to deal with it. But listen, here's God's heart. Here's God's desire for His people. Here's how you're to mete out justice. Here's how you're to protect life. Here's how you're to preserve life. The same God that, that says this is the same God that we worship today. This gives us something of the heart and the desire for God. And it calls upon us as believers to be diligent in the preservation of life, all life. Life is precious. And we need to recognize that and know that. And so now let me say something else. And I mentioned this on Wednesday night. And you may be hearing more about it as I learn more about it. But, and again, if you're visiting with us, I'm not political. I am political as far as if you talk to me on the side. I love politics. But behind this pulpit, I'm not going to get political. I've never endorsed anyone from behind this pulpit. But in the state of Michigan, we've got a proposal coming up. It's Proposal 3. And I encourage the people Wednesday night, you need to do your homework on this proposal. It is a proposal that if you if you vote yes you're giving the state the right to reproductive freedom I'm looking for what was sent to me about this I can't find it now but but someone else has sent me some information concerning this proposal. And this is from Right to Life, and I've tried to research it, and I'll continue to research it. But I want you to do the same thing, because I want you to vote intelligently on this proposal. And again, this is not a political issue, it's a moral issue. With this proposal, if it passes, any kind of abortion, including partial birth abortion, becomes legal any time during the pre- pregnancy, including up and until the moment before birth, is legal. Any woman at any age, even teenagers, getting an abortion without their parents knowing. The ban on taxpayer funding of abortion will be done away with. Laws requiring parental consent and informed consent will be done away with. Laws requiring abortion clinics to pass health and safety inspections will be done away with. Even the law saying only doctors can perform abortions will be appealed. This they want to make a part of our Constitution. The state's Constitution. This, I believe, will call the judgment of God even harder down upon us. Because all life is precious even the life in the womb. So I want to make you aware of this proposal, because for some it's a matter of life and death in the womb. And if nothing else, what we take away from Deuteronomy chapter 19 is this. All life is precious. And we need to take that reality seriously. Now, let me say this, because I don't know who's going to listen to this or who's watching, whatever else anybody, how everybody gets this, I don't know, but I know there are some live streaming and others who will watch it later. Let me say this, though. Maybe someone's watching this who's had an abortion. And they carry the guilt of that. Well, I'm here to tell you, there's a way of dealing with that guilt. And it's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And and there's no sin so grievous that God can not forgive. And He stands ready to save anyone who calls upon Him. He wants to give you eternal life. That's what He wants. That's His desire. His desire is that none should perish, but all should have life. And so the good news is, and what I'm able to proclaim to you also from this pulpit is, yes, life is precious, and the taking of life is wicked, but God forgives all who call upon him. And even right now, you could have dealings with God, and he stands ready to save you and bring you into his kingdom and change your life from darkness to light. So I want to end on that note because I want you to know that. I don't. I don't want anybody to think as a church we're here to crush you and destroy you. No, we love you. And we want you to have the good news that Jesus Christ saves. And all of us would probably echo with the Apostle Paul, even the worst of sinners. What a Savior. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we pray that we might learn Your heart and Your desires as we hear Your Word. And our desire would be to pursue that. To do that which is pleasing in Your sight. That that we would love justice because You love justice. And so, Father, we pray that we might come with hearts that are open to receive the Word and that good fruit might come from our time together. Father, we would pray for some who do not know you, some who may sit here in this place, some who may be listening and watching. Oh, Father, how we pray most of all that they would see that Jesus Christ is our only hope. It's through his righteousness that we have acceptance with God, and that even today, because of your grace, they would come to you in faith, and that, Father, they would know the blessed state of forgiveness and reconciliation to our God. So Father, we pray that You would be working in hearts and lives, that they would know peace that passes all understanding because of knowing You through Your Son. So take Your Word and make it effective, we pray, as we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I have found myself at the desk when I've been reading through Deuteronomy and trying to figure out what all it means and how it can apply to our hearts and lives. I find myself humming the tune of Hymns of Grace, 365. We've sung it many times since we started the book of Deuteronomy. Ancient words, ever true, changing me, changing you. That's what I pray for. As I prepare the messages, I'm praying, Lord, I don't want people just to know a little bit of history about the Israelites and what it was like to go into the Promised Land, but I pray these words will change us, have an effect upon us in our lives. So as we close together, 365, the hymns of grace, ancient words. Let's stand together we sing. That's our prayer, that these ancient words will change me and change you, that we'll have a heart that beats with our God and desire what he desires.
1: We're glad you're here. If you're visiting
0: with us and haven't signed our guest book, it's there at the back door. We'd love for you to have a record of your visit among us. We are having lunch. I can begin to smell it, so I think it's cooking. And they will have lunch in second service about 1.45. You're welcome to stay. Please you're dismissed.